The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Our text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 15. In acknowledgement, this is the Word of God. I invite you to stand. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others that what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let's pray. Lord, now as we take up your word, I pray that the truth of this text would penetrate into the very depths of our being. Lord, this is your word. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. So I pray that it would do its work today in the hearts and lives of all who hear. And Lord, that we would live in the, in the conscious recognition that you have made your plan and your will known to us and that you have given us right motivation in how to live. So cause us to see that today through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, you are living in a time and a period of history where something is becoming more and more clear every day. That you are in a culture that is compelled by guilt. That the use of shame and guilt is being used to manipulate people to do all sorts of things. It is the fear of, of not being a part or not saying the right things and, and just who you are that we have been shamed and guilted into things. The other thing that has been going on culturally now for as long as man has been alive in the garden, but true so much in our culture is self-love. The people are being motivated by guilt, but they're also motivated by self-love. And here's what's become very, very dangerous. It's when self-love, my love for self, of who I am and what I do and what I believe and what I want, and shame on you if you don't support that. It is a prescription for destruction. Society can't stand in that kind of thinking, and you can't stand in that kind of thinking. So then how do you live? How do you respond in a self-loving guilt culture? Well, as followers of Christ, we live and respond with the motivation that God gives us. We don't live out of the fear of man, and we don't live out of love for self. Here's the main idea today. Compelled by the love of Christ, 
we reverently live for him and make him known. So I want to make sure you see these two motivations in this text. They serve really as bookends to this paragraph. Two motivations that are tightly connected to each other, even though many people want to see them in opposition to one another. They flow out of verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That all of our lives currently are lived under the scrutiny of holy God. And that we all are facing a culminating judgment where we will stand before this holy God and receive what is due, what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. So that rightly leads Paul to say that therefore knowing the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is something that is hardly ever discussed today in the culture at large, but even within the church. We shrink back from talking about the fear of God because the fear of man keeps us from there. One author said it this way, whatever it is that one fears the most, that is the one you will serve the most. In Psalm 14.1, the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, you know, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then what follows is the, re- the results of saying there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. And there is none that does good. They call evil good. Folks, you're, you're living in the midst of a world that said there's no God. These are the consequences that come. Corruption, abominable deeds, no one doing good. When what the tension that holds us is the fear of the Lord or the reverence of God. We revere who God is, what God has done, what God is going to do, and what God is capable of doing. That results in our life in faith and obedience. So reverence of who God is, what God has done, what God will do, leads to trusting God and obeying God in our lives. At the end of the book of Hebrews, the writer says, Therefore, let us be grateful receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. About 20 years ago, I read a book called The Joy of Fearing God by Jerry Bridges. Sadly, the the title and the subject kept that book from getting the readership that it should have. He says in the book, quote, Had sin never entered the world, it would still be fitting for us to fear God. To bow in reverential awe before Him, we would gladly join the seraphs in calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. But sin did enter the world. And because of His holiness, God now reveals Himself as the hater of sin and the just punisher of sinners. But 
He also reveals Himself in the person of His Son as a merciful and gracious Savior. Our awe of His holiness can be joined with the amazement of His love. And you see Paul doing this in this simple paragraph here. You see the motivation of the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. In verse 14 he says, the love of Christ controls us. The word control here can be translated urges us or motivates us or compels us. It's the driving force of our lives. The love of Christ is what compels us. So, two things this, this morning. Compelled by the love of Christ, we reverently live for Him. For the love of Christ controls us, I'm in verse 14, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now what Paul is describing here is substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? It means Christ died for our sins in our place. He says it this way, one has died for all, therefore all have died. If you go down to verse 21, he says, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ is our substitute. He died in our place. Now what Paul is not saying in verse 14, what he is not teaching is universalism. That is, that everyone in the end will be saved because of the work of Christ. Now people want to take up this text and argue about it. They want to argue about particular redemption or sufficient atonement with efficient application. And you say, what does all those words mean? If it means nothing to you, just ignore me. If it does mean something to you, let me suggest slash warn and plead with you. The subject of growth group this week is not particular redemption. If you go into growth group and argue about particular redemption, you have missed the meaning of the text. One has died for all, therefore all have died. But what does it start with? The love of Christ controls us. So trusting in Christ alone for salvation results in a radical change in motivation and in living. Look in verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, that we might cast off self-love, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now you hear the echoes of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. The death and resurrection are crucial and essential unto our salvation. Because Christ died in our place and conquered death through the resurrection, we no longer live for ourselves. Listen carefully. Not because we're trying to obtain salvation. Christ has already accomplished our salvation. Redemption has been accomplished. Now Paul works from redemption accomplished, but he moves to redemption applied. What does that mean in your life? That Christ has redeemed you. It means this. 
that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now turn over to Romans chapter 14. While you're turning there, I just want to offer a little sidebar. Romans 14 would be worth your meditation because it begins with this verse, do not quarrel about opinions. Brothers and sisters, quit fighting about with each other whether you ought to wear a mask. Who cares? It's not worth the fight. It really is not worth the fight. Here's what we ought to be concerned about. Verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. That means that we live in a humble awareness, a reverential awareness of the one who has saved us and the one who reigned over us, reigns over us. At 9.30 this morning, a 16-year-old young woman, Paige Thomas, stood in the waters of baptism and she made this declaration. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. She didn't only say, Jesus is my Savior. This has become very normal in evangelical world. That we don't talk about Jesus being our Savior. Jesus is either Lord and Savior or He's neither. We live in the conscious awareness that we are the Lord's. We are His. We belong to Him. He is Lord of the dead and of the living. So, as a result, compelled by the love of Christ, we reverently live for Him and make Him known. Now let's go back up to verse 11 and make the connections. Therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing means we understand and we experience the fear of the Lord. It's not just some Bible verse we've got up in our head. It's that the truth that we know has penetrated into our hearts and led to a response that we know, we experience the fear of the Lord based off the truth of what God has revealed about Himself. So my motivation as a Christian the motivation of a Christian is not, you better worship God or He's going to get you. You better do these number of things or God's going to get you. Or let's just use the verse here. How many of you grew up in church, been around church most of your whole life? You ever been guilted in evangelism? Oh, come on. You've been in Baptist life very long. You've been shamed into evangelism. That is not what Paul's teaching here. We don't shame people into sharing their faith. Because we are compelled by the love of Christ, that the price of our salvation has been paid, and we rightly understand who God is, we persuade others, not in some form of manipulation. God doesn't love me more because I evangelize. I evangelize because God loves me. I am compelled by this love. I can't shut up about this love. Anything you're in love with, you talk about. Am I right here? 
You talk about whatever you love. And if you are compelled by the love of Christ, you will talk about it. Now Paul here is saying that he practices persuasion not in a way that he would sacrifice the truth. We might say we want to persuade others because we believe Jesus died on the cross for the sin. We want them to be saved. How about this, this little survey in your head? You don't have to respond to this. How many of you have ever been in church and you felt like whatever that preacher just did was manipulative? He tricked people into doing things. Tricked them into some form of response. Paul said, I, I, I never used any kind of means of persuasion to trick people. What I do, Paul's saying, is I do it in fear of God. How, how dare I or you manipulate what God has said to get somebody to agree with me? That's a dangerous place to walk out on. Brothers and sisters, here, here's what I know. Every time I stand up here and preach, I know two things. Number one, I'm going to answer to God for what I say. To God. That doesn't mean I ignore you. God has used you, that is the people of God, to correct me more than one time. But ultimately, I answer to God. Secondly, here's what I know. You're going to answer to God. And that reverence compels me out of the love of Christ to make Him known. Now, <laughs> if there's ever been a time when people question somebody's motives, it is today. Whoever we hear, whatever it is they're talking about, all we got to do is get on social media and question their motives, and everybody else will jump in and question their motives with you. Paul says, I know you're questioning my motives, Corinthians. I've read my Twitter feed. But here's what I want you to know. What we are is known to God. You may think I'm something else. I may be something else. But who I am is known to God. And who you are is known to God. Now Paul says, he's defending that he's living under Christ. He says, I hope it's known to your conscience. I hope you see that I'm compelled by the love of Christ and living in the fear of the Lord. He says, we're not committing ourselves to you again to give you cause to boast about us but so that you may be able to answer those who boast about uh, outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. What, what's he saying here? He's saying people are, are consumed with the outside of someone, whether someone's impressive or not. Paul says, we don't want to boast on the right thing. And he tells you this multiple times in First and Second Corinthians. Let him who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. What we are is known to God. He says they're concerned with outward appearance, not what is in the heart. Now this sounds very familiar to 1 Samuel 16 when God says to Samuel, don't look at his outward appearance in the selection of the king. Don't. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, what does he see? What does God see when he looks on the heart of unregenerate man, 
of an unsaved person. You know what he sees? He sees something that is deceitful and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9. He sees that there is no one who is good. There is no, not even one. Because God sees this, because God in His infinite wisdom knows this, and because God is love, He established the new covenant. He promised He would in Ezekiel, and He said it this way. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, I'll take out your dead, stony, cold heart, and I will give you a new heart that is alive. Because here's what God knows. This is what he has said. This is true of every one of you in this room. Your heart is the wellspring of life. Proverbs 4.23 From your heart, your life flows. Whoever you are, whatever you say, whatever you do, births from and comes from your heart. Back to 2 Corinthians. Paul says, if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. If it's in our right mind, it is for you. <laughs> so here's, what, here's the response Paul knows he's getting right now in their heads. You're crazy, Paul. You're just a nut. Now, I don't know what they're accusing him of being a nut. This is what's unclear right here. Are they accusing Paul of being a nut because when they saw or heard Paul worship, they didn't really understand what he was doing? Is that it? Or they just thought Paul was a nut that he was risking his life for the sake of the gospel. That he had laid down a prestigious career as a Pharisee and now was literally risking his life on a day-in and day-out basis. And they looked at that and said, you're crazy. Why would you do that? Here's how it plays out in good old Southern Baptist life. When you meet a missionary and you say, why would you take your family there? In other words, we're saying what they said to Paul. You're a nut. And Paul says, if I'm a nut, it's for God. If you think I'm a nut, I'm not concerned about that. It's between me and the Lord. But here's what else I want you to know. I don't live like a nut all the time. Now, hear me out. (laughs) I think all of us go through this wacko phase as a Christian at some point. Because all these things are swirling in our hearts and minds and we're trying to make sense out of it and we just live wacko. And some of us like me are just wacko anyway. But anyhow, he says, if I'm in my right mind, it's for you. What's Paul saying? He's saying that he speaks clearly and comprehensively to them in such a way that they understand. He's not speaking subjectively. It's very interesting how how few times Paul talks subjectively. He doesn't use words like I feel or I think. He speaks truth. He tells the truth and he says it in such a way that people can understand it. He speaks and acts for their sake in the fear of the Lord. Now next week we're going to unpack what this persuasion is. We, we persuade others. What this ministry of reconciliation. So I'm going to limit myself here, but let's read where we're going next week. The end of chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this is the person who's received this new heart. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's just say I'm a little fired up about preaching this text. But it can't be understood without these two motivations. I don't know how many times I've heard sermons about the ministry of reconciliation and therefore if anyone is in Christ. And it leaves out this beginning part. These two motivations that lead us to the ministry of reconciliation. The fear of God and the compelling love of Christ. So here's my question to you. Am I compelled by the love of Christ to reverently live for Him and make Him known? It's not just live for Him. It's make Him known. Now, now we live in a cancel culture. You don't know what I mean by that. It means that people are so afraid of consequences that people are making decisions that they would not normally make. They're saying and doing things that they normally wouldn't do because they're afraid of, quote, being canceled. We are being controlled by the media, by social media, and by the mob. Now listen carefully to my brief sidebar. I believe that there are things that are happening in the world that need to be dealt with. But they need to be dealt with with civil discourse. Not with the means of manipulation through coercion of guilt. That's going to turn on us. What you have culturally right now, I haven't said this all morning, and I try not to leave the script, but I'm going to. It's a two-headed snake that's devouring itself. Even though they look very different, if you want to use right and left, they're both using the same tactics. Shame and guilt. Brothers and sisters, we are not of this world. We're not. I don't get my motivation from the number of likes I got on Facebook this week. And I want to tell you, it's a sad existence that some people have got to, that their whole life is about whether or not they get response in social media. This isn't just young people. This has now moved way into adulthood, way even into senior adulthood. You say, I don't look at the internet. That's fine. I'm glad you don't. But you do watch the news. This controlling faction of the world is everywhere. Here's the cancellation I live under Christ canceled my debt. He suffered in my place. He laid down his life for me. 
I could not save myself. I cannot save myself. You cannot save yourself. There is no self-salvation. There is no means, even though this culture is telling you, you do this, this, and this, you're saved. They're not using that language, but listen to it. There's a salvation talking about in the culture right now. If you'll just grab hold of these things, it's, it's going to bring salvation and enlightenment to the world. Brothers and sisters, Christ died for our sins. He died in our place. He was buried and rose on the third day. And if we repent of our sins and place our trust in Christ alone for our salvation, here's what happens. Our motives and the trajectory of our lives change forever. Paul described it this way in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live... In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, and hear it, who loved me and gave himself for me. Next week, not this coming week, but next week will be summer camp. This will be the first time since the mid 2005 or six that I haven't spoken at camp. The reason I'm not speaking at camp anymore is I decided I'm too old. And I wanted to stop speaking at camp before the kids went, why's the old dude speaking at camp? But there was a cycle. Every four years I teach and this year's ransomed. And every year I stand up, this is the first thing I say. What do you want? What do you want, young people? And I say to you, seated here, whether you're 8 or 80, what do you want? Because here's what's true. You ready? You are what you love. There's no escape. You are what you love. Jesus Christ will not be tagged on to what you love. He will not. Christ died for you. He died for a self-loving human being who is afraid of people. He died in your place. Have you seen and recognized his love and your sin? Have you repented of your sin and trusted Christ? Have you become a new creation? Because when you do, you love now because he first loved us. It'll never happen in the reverse. You will never love Jesus first. And that's why some of you are unsaved Christians. Because you've got it out of order. You loved him first without seeing that he first loved you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? The old is come. Behold, the new is come. You know what it is? It's a new motivation. It's a brand new trajectory. I am what I love.
and so are you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word and for speaking to us today. I plead on behalf of men and women who are seated here who know that their love is for something other than Christ. That their reverence is for someone other than the Lord God Almighty. I pray that as you have shown them this through the power of the Holy Spirit, that they would now repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone for his saving work on the cross and through the power of the resurrection. That they would repent of their sin and believe on Jesus today. I pray that you would do heart-changing work in this room. And for those whose love have grown cold, who have been distracted by a world gone crazy, I pray that right now, with a heart of conviction, that your people would repent and that they would return to their first love, the one who has loved them. Lord, do your work among us. Compel us now through love and reverence to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.